The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which, was, which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Nathan, for reading that passage. When was the last time you were starstruck? A chance encounter with with somebody that is of significance to you, maybe an entertainer or an athlete or politician maybe. I, I don't get starstruck very often. I've been around a lot of people of note over years. I've been around entertainers, authors, public figures, politicians. Enough that I, I don't very often get nervous in the presence of somebody famous. People, I, I, people are just people, you know. Every once in a while, very rarely, I do get starstruck. And it always surprises me. 
And it happened a number of years ago. Um, this was back in the mid-90s. I was, we, my wife and I had just been married, and we were living here in Nashville, and I was working as a landscaper. And um, I was working at... Uh, Reba McIntyre had built a new recording studio on Music Row called Starstruck. Reba McIntyre, not starstruck by her. I'm a fan. I think she's wonderful. I met her. No big deal. But I'm working on this recording studio landscape out in front. And I'm standing by the door. And <laughs> around the corner, walking straight toward me, is Emmy Lou Harris. Guys, Emmy Lou Harris. <laughs> Some of you maybe won't know Emmy Lou Harris because you weren't raised right. <laughs> but there is still time for you to pick up her album Wrecking Ball or Red Dirt Girl, start there, and then you can work toward her back catalog or things she's done. Emmy Lou Harris. She walks up to me, and I open the door for her. And she passes by, and she says, thank you. And I feel like when Frodo first met Galadriel in the elven forest, and I'm stunned by her magic, and I'm silenced by her grace. Calm is kind of following in the trail behind her, but if she wanted to call down the fury from heaven in that moment, she could. That's how I felt. I couldn't... I, the, I couldn't wait to get home to tell Lisa, you're not going to believe what happened to me today. She, you could hear her rolling her eyes from across the room. <laughs> I couldn't wait to tell her. I, don't, I rarely get starstruck. Sometimes it happens. This applies to passages of Scripture for me. Um, I rarely get star. As a preacher, I, I love the challenge of taking a passage of Scripture, studying it, looking for a thread that I can pull on to cinch it together in the form of a sermon. Classic passages, Good Samaritan, let me add it, right? Prodigal Son, let's do a three-parter. David and Bathsheba, oh, I'm, I'm all about that. We'll just dive in. But I have to confess, I'm starstruck by today's passage. Isaiah 52 and 53 for me are among the most formative and therefore revered texts in Scripture for me. And so the challenge of thinking through what I want to say in a sermon was just, it was a challenge for me this week to think that through. Because these passages, they say so much and they say it so clearly and they say it so specifically about our atonement in Jesus that I, I tremble when I read them. And I don't want to get in the way of them. The poetry and the precision, the meaning of these verses, they carry, they, they carry the full weight of Christmas. They carry the full weight of Easter. Christianity's most central holy days. This is the passage that ties Christmas and Easter together. It's the passage that, that reminds us and shows us that you can't make sense of Christmas without the cross and you can't make sense of Easter without the birth of Jesus. 
how do Easter and Christmas connect? What does one have to do with the other? And so nothing in me wants to be clever with these verses. Nothing in me wants to be original with these verses. Nothing in me wants to be dazzling with these verses. Here's what I want to do. I want to approach this sermon by just walking through the text. One stanza at a time. And talk about what we're reading. And so if you have a Bible, open it to those passages, to Isaiah 52, 13, through Isaiah 53, 12. If your Bible is on your phone, hear me say to you, that's fine. You can get your phone out and look at your phone. Because that's how we read our Bibles a lot of times these days, right? As we have apps on our phone. That's okay to do. Um, so so let's, just, let's just dig in. I'll first, What I want to do first, though, is I want to find this passage in its context because it does have significant context in that this is a, what's called one of the servant songs of Isaiah, and it's the fourth one. It's the fourth servant song. Isaiah 42 through 53 give us Isaiah's servant songs, these four songs that are, what they're doing is they're vividly describing the one that God would send to deliver Israel and to secure her redemption. And the advent of these prophecies would come at Christmas, and the accomplishment of these prophecies would come at Easter. And our text is kind of the crown jewel of these songs. So I want to find the fourth song in the context of the other three before it by just hitting on them very briefly, okay? So the first servant song is in Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. And what it does is it speaks to the truth that God will send a servant to bless his people, one who will be, quote, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. So God is going to do this. The second servant song is Isaiah 49, 1 through 53. And what it does is it clarifies that while this servant will be from Israel, it's not a reference to the nation of Israel. The servant is not the nation of Israel as a whole, but it's an individual from among Israel. And then the third servant song, which is Isaiah 54 to 9, which we just talked about last week, adds that this ministry of his, of this individual from Israel, will be a ministry of action, not just words. He will, he will teach, but he will also do things. Not only will he declare the Lord's salvation, but he will personally suffer on behalf of God's people in order to hold up a salvation that will endure forever. And so these first three songs announce that the servant of the Lord is coming. His work will be both liberating and reconciling. He won't be a nation or a philosophy, but he will be a man born of a woman, named by God, and his will be a ministry of words, and it will also be a ministry of action, specifically suffering on behalf of God's people. But the story can't end there because we still don't know what his suffering has to do with our salvation. How does one man's pain reconcile another to God? And that is what the fourth servant song is about. And so when you're looking at these passages, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, there's basically five stanzas of three verses each. So if you're looking at it from, from, from the, the lens of poetry, that's what's happening. You have five verses of three stanzas here. 
And what they do is they reveal not only the identity of the servant of the Lord, but specifically how he's going to save God's people. And so here, I'm going to give you the five stanzas kind of as a, as a flyover, and then we'll, we'll jump into them. The first stanza, 53, or 52, 13 to 15, focuses on the divinity of Jesus. 53, 1 to 3, focuses on the humanity of Jesus. 53, 4 to 6, focuses on the affliction of Jesus. And then 53, 7 to 9, focuses on the submission of Jesus. And then 53, 10 to 12, focuses on the reason for it all. Okay, so the divinity, the humanity, the affliction, the submission, and the reason um, are the, <coughs> the five points. So, the divinity of Jesus, 52, 13 to 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of any of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told they will see, and that which they have not heard they will understand. This song begins with the ending. The servant will act wisely, and in the end he will be exalted and lifted up, telling us that the servant was known long before his arrival, and the result of his coming was fixed, and it was certain before it even happened. He won't be merely acted upon. He'll be the one who acts. And he acts in concert with God. He knows the mind of God. He's one in purpose with God. And nothing is going to alter his course. He'll take a beating along the way. So bad that people won't even recognize him. But in the end, by his word and his presence, the kings of this world will shut their mouths in humbled silence before him. The servant is no mere mortal. He's one with God. He's the one John referred to as the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The humanity of Jesus, 53, 1 to 3. Who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. The stanza says that while he is one with the Father, he is also in every way human. And this is a mystery, right? The mystery of the humanity and the divinity of Christ, the dual nature of Christ who is fully God and fully man. Church councils have been called, volumes have been written on the subject of the divinity and the humanity of Christ. But from Isaiah's words, he labors to make us see that this servant of the Lord will be in every way ordinary. In his appearance, his birth will be like a root out of dry ground. It'll be unnoticed by almost everyone. Look at your landscaping when you get home. There will be weeds that weren't there a month ago, and you've probably not noticed them. They just happen. They just kind of grow up 
out of the dry ground and you don't really pay attention to it. You don't really see it happen. It's unnoticed. He won't be unusually handsome. He won't be a foot taller than everybody else. He won't be jacked, right? He'll have no beauty that people would be drawn to him, nor would he have an easy life. He'll be a man whose life is filled with sorrow. People will despise him. Have you ever, any of you ever read G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy? If you, if you are, it's a wonderful book to read. And I hesitate to even say this. But even if you haven't read it, look it up and read the last paragraph of Orthodoxy. Don't read the last paragraph of Orthodoxy and then tell people you've read Orthodoxy. Don't do that. But read the last paragraph of G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, because he makes a statement in there that is kind of brilliant and, will, and kind of blows my mind. And he talks about how in the life of Jesus, the triune God was pleased to reveal so much about the character of God, about the personality of God, but there's this mystery because one thing seems to be withheld. And the thing that G.K. Chesterton says seems to be withheld is his mirth. Fascinating. A man of sorrows. We know that joy is a characteristic of the personality of God. And yet there is this strange silence in Scripture when it comes to the, the, the joviality of Jesus. He truly is a man of sorrows. The affliction of God, that's the third stanza, 53, 4 to 6. Surely he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant will take upon himself our grief and he will carry our sorrow. Yes, powerful people will be involved in that process and they will bring pain into his last days, but they will not be the ones to crush him. God will be the one to do that. The servant will be smitten by God and afflicted. He'll be wounded for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquity. And the punishment that will bring us peace will be laid upon him and by his stripes we will be healed. Why? Because... We've all gone astray. 
This is such a fundamental concept of the human experience in Scripture is none of us are righteous. None of us are righteous. And if there is a God who is holy and who has created us for a relationship with Him and we are not righteous, that relationship is broken. And it will not be reconciled by God condescending to not be holy. It has to be. Him making us holy. And he does this through a substitute. Christ lives for us. Christ takes the wage of our sin upon himself, death. Death can't hold him because he has committed no sin. He defeats the power of death and then he moves our identity into him. And we are one with him. Why is he afflicted? Why does he suffer? Because we have gone astray and deserve God's wrath. But God will lay on his servant the iniquity of us all. He will take God's wrath for our sin upon himself. The submission of Jesus. He'll do it willingly. He was oppressed. This is 7 through 9. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The fourth stanza reveals something astonishing. And that is that God will bring the full measure of his wrath toward our sin on his servant. And the servant will cooperate and will submit to that process when he could have spoken to defend himself and when you read the stories in the gospel of the trial of Jesus there were so many places where with a word he could have defended himself and the case would have fallen in on itself but he didn't when he could have spoken to defend himself he stayed silent like a lamb that is led to its slaughter he'd be struck dead he would be cut off from the living for the sins of God's people and he would die among the guilty and he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. But he would be guiltless of wrongdoing. He'd done no violence. No deceit was in his mouth. The Lord's servant, fully God and fully man, would be smitten by God and he would willingly yield even unto death. Which brings us to the last stanza and the reason for all of this. This is 10 through 12 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He is put into grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days 
The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion among the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How would the divinity, the humanity, the affliction, and the submission of Jesus all translate into our peace with God, the death that we deserve to die? He would undergo for us. His life was offered up as a guilt offering on our behalf, and it was God's will for this to happen, and he would stand in for us. He'd stand in and be our substitute in death, bearing our sin. And God would look upon this substitution and he would be satisfied. The servant of the Lord would make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. To understand Easter, we have to see it through the lens of Christmas and Christmas through the lens of the cross. We celebrate Jesus' birth only in part for his ministry of words. Yes, his, his teaching and his example matter. and They're unparalleled. But he was born for a purpose greater than words alone. He came to do something that we could not do. To live the perfect life we've all failed to live. A failure which has set us at enmity with our maker and Jesus absorbed the full weight of God's wrath toward our rejection of him. The Apostle Peter wrote this. We read this earlier in the service. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, and by his wounds you have been healed. It's amazing to me to think of those words in First Peter that they're written by the Apostle Peter, who was, for all intents and purposes, Jesus' best friend was close to him, walked with him, knew him, loved him, failed him, was restored by him. Missed the point a lot. And yet here, the end of his life, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And by his wounds you have been healed. God did not perform a magic trick to secure your salvation. It was a life for life. The suffering servant, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, incarnate as a living, breathing man who died a real death in your place, a substitution you couldn't have without a real birth. But since death held no claim on him, he rose on Easter, securing our victory over death forever. Christmas means, I know we're kind of having Christmas in July, Christmas means there would be a suffering servant who would be wounded for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquity. And Easter tells us that because of the resurrection by his wounds, you are healed. So much, so much has been done to reconcile us to our maker. You were, you were made for a relationship with your creator. So much has been done to reconcile you to him. 
so much has been given. Are you worth it? You are. You absolutely are. Father, we, we see through a glass dimly in this life when we look at the ways that you are working, when we look at the things that we think we need that you withhold, when we look at the things that we never would have asked for that you give some that we view as blessing and some that we view as curse. It's, it's an astonishing thing to, to be in this point in history where we're looking at this passage from Isaiah 52 and 53 from the perspective of everything that it's talking about having been done already and the finished work of Christ on our behalf and, and what it what it forces us to accept and that is that you in your wisdom and in your affection you regard us as worthy of this for the glory of your son and also very much for the affection of your people so thank you what else can we say thank you Thank you for what you have done to reconcile us to yourself through your divinity and your humanity and your affliction and your submission and your accomplishing our redemption through the atoning substitution of Jesus in our place. Thank you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.